Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kojurenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. Today, our guest is Marie-Laura Mungai, who is an investor, strategic advisor, and entrepreneur specializing in the African creative industries and sports business, with an 18-year experience spanning 27 countries on the continent. Her advisory firm, Restless Global, provides solutions to international companies, institutions, and investors seeking to expand to Africa, and has worked with clients such as Warner Brothers, UNESCO, Twitter Films, Trace, Film One Entertainment, Rainbow Sports Global, and development banks like the IFC, AFD, Propaco, AFDB, and AfriExim Bank. Over the years, Restless Global has built a rare expertise on the financing of African creative industries. The firm has built framework strategies and tools to facilitate the investment of both public and private actors in the creative sector and has advised its clients on how to adapt traditional and alternative financing model to service the different segments of the African creative entrepreneur ecosystem. She is also the writer and publisher of the popular Hustle and Flow newsletter, which talks about investment opportunities in the African entertainment space. You started your, your journey in journalism. You are an award-winning journalist, and after more than six years of working internationally with some of the um, world's biggest media organizations, you decided that you want to take a huge jump into building your own media company. Can you talk to us about your inspiration? You could have perhaps now continued to be doing that work. What inspired you to want to build an organization that would focus on African storytelling more specifically? Yes, yeah, so there were several steps um, and several several uh, meetings and encounters that led me to the transition. It didn't happen. It was not a, a conscious decision. Um, so as you said, my first career was as a journalist. So I actually started out in New York at CNN, and then I um, wanted some um, adventure, and I wanted to cover some real stories, and I wanted to see how real people lived. Um, and I spoke French and English, so I thought going somewhere in Africa would be uh, an interesting idea. And some friends recommended me Kenya, but I didn't have any connection uh, to the country in particular. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I still thought that that sounded good. So I uh, decided to go and I wrapped up my life and I landed in Nairobi at 24. I was very new, very fresh as a, as a journalist. And I, so I started working as, as a foreign correspondent um, covering 
a dozen countries um, for CNN and others, the, the, the French, Reuters, uh, the BBC. Um, and that was a great time. I had a lot of freedom to go wherever I wanted and to do the stories that I wanted to do. And one of the things that really struck me when I landed in Nairobi in, in, in 2006 um, was that it didn't look anything like what I had been told Africa looked like growing up in Europe, growing up in France, in Paris. Um, and, and despite the fact that I went to an international school, so there were people from everywhere in my school, and there were Africans there, and yet what I was learning in, in school, um, there was almost nothing about Africa, but I had uh, this idea that it was uh, not very developed, and Nairobi, even in 2006, was already a bustling city. Um, you had skyscrapers, you had brand new malls, you had brand new cinemas, uh, so clearly that, was, that didn't mesh with uh, you know, what I had been told. So as a journalist, I decided, okay, my role is going to be to correct some of the misconceptions uh, that are persisting uh, in Western countries about the continent. And so I purposely started to cover stories um, about uh, innovation and tech uh, and business and creativity. Uh, of course, I had to do also, you know, all the big stories, so the the you know, conflicts or natural disasters, but I really focused on um, these stories of, uh, of of really growth that I was seeing around me. Uh, for example, I was there on the ground when, when Safaricom launched Mbesa in Kenya, which was, um, uh, you know, really groundbreaking. And so I was doing that, um, and I was uh, working as a journalist uh, doing all of these things, um, when the elections of 2007, December 2007, happened in Kenya. And uh, a lot of people now, you know, the younger generations might have uh, a vague idea of what happened, but it didn't go down well at all. Um, and uh, and uh, Kenya, uh, post-election violence erupted in Kenya. It became really, I mean, we were on the brink of a civil war, really. Um, and so I was covering this as a journalist, and just a couple weeks before, I had done a story on um, cartoonists in Kenya and how they were really uh, at the forefront of the political discourse. They were the ones who were out there, um, you know, really saying, uh, drawing things that, uh, you know, others couldn't say. And so they really had a key role in, uh, you know, in, in, in really the social discourse and, and, and um, civil society. And so in the course of that story, I had met the most famous cartoonist in Kenya. His name is Gado. And uh, we got to talking after the interview, and I asked him what else he was working on, uh, because he was telling me he was also an animator, and he showed me the uh, uh, teaser for a show he had been trying to uh, put on the air for several years, uh, which was uh, basically a puppet show with uh, puppets as caricatures of politicians, and it was a politi political satire show. Um, and I immediately recognized what he was trying to do because it was a local version of a show that um, existed in France for over 20 years and that I grew up watching, so that was really iconic in France. And so I thought that's a brilliant idea. It would that would be so great to have such a show in in a country like Kenya. In France, it's been really instrumental, um, you know, on television and 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 building kind of the political awareness of generations of, of people just like me. Uh, and I thought that's that's so great. And 
but of course I was working full-time as a journalist, so I kind of put that at a corner of my mind and then went back to work and then the elections happened, post-election violence, I was covering, uh, you know, really horrible things, people getting burnt in churches and it, it was really, really terrible. It lasted for a long time, it lasted uh, three, four months. The country was completely um, on a standstill while the violence was happening and people were hiding at home, basically. Stores were closed. Uh, and when finally, you know, solutions started to emerge and uh, the, the, the country started slowly to, to go back to normal, I decided, okay, um, I need to do this show. I need to help this person because um, a show, if a show like this had been on the air, maybe there would have been a space to discuss some of the issues that led to so much frustration uh, and that turned into violence. And so I need to do this. So I called him back. Uh, called Gatto back and I said, okay, I'm going to help you. And he didn't even question who are you, why, what can you bring me? He just said, okay. Uh, and so then we, we started the journey. And so that's really uh, the story of how I transitioned. Then it took a very long time. Uh, we This is a, a show, so the show in Kenya called The XYZ Show. Then we did a version in Nigeria called Ogas at the Top for two years. It's a very difficult show to make. Uh, it took many steps. Uh, we had to build an entire studio around it. We had to hire people. We had to make puppets. Um, so it was a whole endeavor, but that's really how everything started. And at first I thought, I'll just help out on the side as I continue to be a journalist. Uh, and quite quickly, it just uh, sucked me in and I found out that I was, I was needed all the time and it was uh, an all-encompassing uh, project. Uh, and then little by little, I, I transitioned uh, full-time into um, uh, this project, then growing the studio that was attached to it, and then launching other um, initiatives and other businesses in similar spaces. So that was definitely an unpacking of the journey. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I mean, what others might not know that this grew to become an 80 member, I think, 80 member studio. Yeah. Um, so, which is definitely a big uh, media house, um, definitely when it comes to African context. So, you know, the transitioning happened at a time where there was brimming political instability. Uh, in a, one of the articles I read, one cultural analyst says that what satire does is that it teaches us to have the courage to love our power. And in a lot of in a lot of ways, that is what you did. Looking at your background and where you came from, what gave you the courage to be able to push for such powerful voice using the XYZ show to be able to question that political class that historically in Kenya did not, you know, did not have a lot of people standing to it. Well, for me, it was easy because I'm French. I didn't have any stake into the, the local context, although I was married to a Kenyan, right? So that did make me very close to, um, uh, to the local context. But, uh, but he had not voted in these elections that, 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 you know, then led to all this violence. So, um, he, like a lot of Kenyans, he didn't really have a stake in the race, but then, uh, you know, they were forced to take sides. Uh, so from my side, as a foreigner, and as a European who grew up uh, in a society that uh, has a, a freedom of speech, although uh, it is not 100% anywhere and it's challenged in every country, uh, and we've, we've seen that, uh, you know, everywhere in the U.S., Europe, it's, it's the case. 
So it's not uh, only an African phenomenon or a developing economy phenomenon. But so I did not have any uh, fear uh, personally. However, then we had a team, right? Um, and I have to say that um, uh, somehow Gado and I built a team that from the very first day was completely fearless. And they had a lot more at stake than me, obviously. Uh, Gado himself had, had been doing that work. That's why I had met him at first, you know, when I was profiling him as a journalist already by that time, 20 years or so. So the show was just a continuation of what he was doing in his cartoons. It was really the same thing. It was the same topics, the same criticism, the same jokes. It's just that now we were bringing it to television and, and the fact that, that we were making physical puppets of politicians made it a lot more real. And so, and of course, and we were, uh, rapidly the show became huge. So, so, you know, uh, uh, in total, it's, it's, it's reaching 10 million people on all, all platforms, uh, TV, we did radio, we did DVDs, we did the, you know, physical events. Um, it was, of course, it's all online as well. Um, so it, uh, the impact of, uh, television and mass media compared to a cartoon, uh, is, is, uh, is, is much larger. Uh, so we're very much uh, in the public eye. And when the show came out, it was completely new. Everybody was talking about it. We got a lot of criticism because we were not perfect at first. Uh, we improved a lot. Uh, but also people just couldn't, uh, you know, uh, satire was still very, very new uh, in, in Kenya. And, and people had to learn, okay, it's humor, but it's also serious. Are they just you know, making jokes, or is there something they're trying to say? And at first, now it seems obvious today, but uh, not everybody was clear on what it is that we were trying to do. So little by little, the audience uh, got used to it. Um, politicians all became aware of the show. I mean, now, you know, 15 years later, we're being referenced by the presidents all the time. So they're very, very aware. They're very aware of the show. Um, the former president of Kenya used to mention the show as an example of, of how great freedom of the press was in Kenya, actually. Um, uh, so, so we were really uh, in the public eye, and so it could have been really problematic for our team. Uh, but for some reason, we attracted, as as you know, co-founders, Gado and I, were attracted people who were very similarly minded to us, um, and. Everyone down from the puppeteers, because each one of these puppets is being um, um, moved by two people inside. Uh, and these were people who were coming from some of the lower income areas, you know, the slums around Nairobi. Um, and these were people who were the most active politically. They were some of the first to take part in protests and demonstrations. Uh, when we started the show, there was no civil society protests in Kenya. Uh, typically people would not participate. They just minded their own business. They did not want to criticize. They didn't want to risk being arrested or worse, killed. You know, it, it happened. It, that still happens today. Um, but after the post-election violence, things changed. So our show was one of the elements, but not the only ones. There was, it was really the birth of, of, uh, activism, uh, civil activism in Kenya. So there were others also moving in that direction and today you have plenty of protests in Kenya and you have activists and you have people who are really uh, keep you know politicians in the government accountable a lot more than before but at the beginning 
it wasn't the case. So it was it was a long journey, um, but never uh, did anyone in the team ever uh, felt scared. Uh, no one ever wanted to shy away from any topic. Uh, I mean, we did shows where we were portraying, um, you know, the two, the president and the and the prime minister at the time in jail in the Hague for the crimes they committed during the post-election violence. So that's pretty hard hitting and. We discussed as a team, are we ready to put that out? And everybody was in favor of doing it. So I have to say that the, this, this, the team is, is really strong-willed. Um, these people are still there today. So they are still the same doing the show today. Um, so yeah, so that credit goes to them, really, and, and not to me. You know, I, I like the emphasis you've given to your team. And obviously, a lot of kudos to them for creating such a sensational show. And I know we're eventually going to get to that, but I wanted to segue in while we're talking about teams. As an investor now, you know, your journey has transitioned to become an investor in the media and creative and sports, even technology now. How do you look at teams? How does your inspiration from your personal entrepreneurial journey inform you in your decision making when it comes to founding teams at early stage technology, creative industry companies? And how does that um, inform you in what kind of teams you back? Well, every investor will tell you uh, kind of the same thing, that when you invest at early stage, you invest uh, very often in companies that uh, are, are close to just being an idea. Maybe they have a uh, an MVP, a minimal viable product. Maybe they have a few early customers, but it's still very, very early. So you, you cannot really predict whether that particular product or business model is going to work. Most likely there's going to be a lot of pivoting and trying to, to find product market fit or even changing idea completely. So when you do early stage investing, um, the only thing that you can bank on is the founder. Um, and so every investor will tell you that. That's not my secret sauce. Uh, but what I look at personally when I look at founders, um, there's... I mean, we're making a big jump because lots of things happen between XYZ and me becoming an investor. So it's not, I'm, not, I'm not drawing all of my, uh, you know, learnings from, from that one show. But, um, you know, being, founding a company is definitely a marathon. Um, you know, you're going to be in it for, I would say, at the very least 10 years. Uh, so you, you, you need to know that, uh, you need to believe that you're going after something that's, big enough and that can keep you interested on a personal level, I'm talking for the founder, uh, for long enough, uh, that, um, uh, you know, you, you, you're really building something of value. And then there's some personal qualities. Um, you know, I, 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 I do prefer founders that are um, very aware of their market and not everybody is because it's also a question of exposure. Have they traveled some? Are they aware of what's going on in other countries? Um, if they've had an experience abroad, it's, it's, it helps them tremendously uh, to think broader about what they're building. Um, are they um, coachable? It's very important as well. Do they take feedback well? Can you Do you see that you can advise them and make an impact? Uh, are they listening to you? Or do they have a big ego and they think that they know everything? Uh, I also like personally founders that have already founded something else before uh, that has succeeded or failed. It doesn't matter, but they've already been through the journey. Um, so 
you know, if, if they're a little more experienced, a little older, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, I don't have, like, the cult of, of youth for that. But you do need a certain amount of energy to start a company from scratch. So that's why very often, you know, tech startup founders are also very young. Because, you know, if you're going to embark on a, on a 10-year on a journey, it's, it's, it's useful to be young. Um, so, so yeah, these are some of the key, um, key elements that, that I'm looking for. And also, of course, because my areas of interest, um, are mostly the creative industries, although, you know, I've done some, some, a bit of fintech and a bit of edutech. Um, it's very important for me that the, the founder is polished, speaks well, writes well, communicates well about what she or he is trying to build, because this will tremendously impact the founder's ability to raise money, uh, to market their company, uh, to hire others. So communication skills are extremely important as well. Excellent. So, segueing back to the core of the conversation, we were at a point where you had told us the early beginnings of um, your journey, and now you're part of building this revolutionary show, which is now one of the more popular shows in Kenya when it comes to political satires. Like you've said, founders need to be convinced that they're on a long-term journey, and certainly you fall into that category because you went on to eventually selling um, your media company, working with Trays. Can you tell us about... I did, I did not sell my media company, so that's one uh, thing that people often get very wrong. So that's another company that I started. So the, the studio that produces the XYZ show and August at the Top and a lot of other, other things is called Boone Media. Uh, I never sold it. It exists. It's still there in Kenya. It still has the team. It still has the staff. It still produces a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, it has created other shows since then. Um, by the way, the XYZ show is still ongoing. So this year, the team decided to take a break and produce other shows. But um, it's, you know, it's done 14 seasons now uh, to date. Um, so that has never changed. What I sold uh, is uh, the startup that I launched in 2012 called Boonie TV, uh, which was kind of a Netflix for Africa, very, very early uh, in the development of streaming platforms on the continent because it was, I mean, 2012 was, you know, more than 10 years ago, so clearly uh, way too That's early. a long time, yeah. Yeah, so so that is what I, I launched after uh, Boonie Media, the studio. So um, at that point, I had moved <clears throat> part-time to Los Angeles uh, because my husband at the time went to do a master's in cinematography there. So I was commuting between L.A. and Nairobi, uh, which was not easy. But being in California, being in the U.S., and suddenly seeing how people were using video streaming, uh, because it wasn't a thing at all in Africa at the time, yeah. and knowing that there was a big mobile market on the continent, um, I thought, okay, um, pretty soon everybody's going to be streaming video content on their mobile across the continent, so there's an opportunity. And I decided to take it. Uh, 2012 was the really early beginning of the tech scene in Africa, in Nairobi, the iHub, which is still kind of the hub of, of the tech scene, had just started. Um, it, it was really, really new and embryonic, and so you couldn't find... 
Uh, it was super hard to find developers and engineers, CTOs, almost impossible. There was no money at all to raise. Uh, there was no infrastructure. There was no, you know, you couldn't hire anyone who knew anything. We, myself included, I didn't know what I was doing. So uh, it was really early stage. But so my team and I ended up growing uh, this platform to uh, being the largest on the continent after Iroko in Nigeria. Uh, Iroko and, and us started uh, the same year. Uh, and then um, I ended up, uh, so the platform ended up being acquired by Trace Group in 2016. And Trace merged it with the platform that they themselves were launching called Trace Play. And so Buni TV was folded inside Trace Play. And so, and then I ended up advising uh, Trace for a couple of years after that. Okay, so definitely that's been clarified. What was one of the biggest lessons in that process? Again, I wanted to touch on different things while we're in the conversation, because definitely you are a, a founder who has her company acquired. What was one of the biggest lessons in building a company that was successful enough to be acquired by a big player in the space? I, I was very uh, lucky uh, to manage to have an exit because I was in the space where I was too early um, and where I actually believe today that there is that, that was not a real opportunity. Uh, what I saw at the time thinking there's going to be space for a mobile Netflix in Africa and by the time Netflix arrives on the continent, you know, they will want to acquire us. That was completely wrong. Um, what I've learned since then is that uh, in tech, um, if you are competing directly against one of the the the, the really the big guys, so uh, Netflix, Amazon, Google, Apple, um, if if what you're doing they can replicate, even if they're not on your market yet, there's you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time, and. Um, the this idea that you might have you know they're not going to be interested in your market that you have some time to build something and then to make yourself attractive to them that is wrong uh they they don't need what you're building they can replicate much faster than you uh so when netflix expands to a different market they've never made acquisitions of, of local vod platforms they don't need they don't need to they they can just obliterate you um because of their skill and they're so much more uh, you know, advanced technologically than you and in every other aspect. So that is one of the key learnings that, that, um, I got from that experience. And when I see founders building solutions because they think it, it might plug a local gap while Google is not there yet or Amazon is not there yet or something, I, I, I think that it's a waste of time. And I, I tell them that. Um, so, Yes, and actually all of the other video streaming platforms that launched around that time uh, all folded. Um, uh, you know, there, there has been no success in that field. Uh, the only local, I, I would say, okay, maybe there's two examples, that two or three, that perhaps are defying the odds. So one of them is Showmax, which is... Um, not really a good example because Showmax is owned by by MultiChoice and Naspers. Naspers is a you know a global conglomerate in media, and most of their money made from investments uh, uh, they did uh, very smartly in Tencent. 
some years ago, so they have a lot of cash. So they were able to really support the growth of Showmax and share content with, with multi-choice. Uh, and now Showmax has uh, signed a, a, a deal with Comcast. Uh, so they're, they're playing it well, and I think they, they can... They can they can stay the, the course and be a real competitor to the big ones that are coming up, uh, uh, and then there's some um, other small platforms that are more um, really targeting the bottom of the pyramid. So people who only who will not pay for a Netflix or Amazon subscription, uh, who can pay for you know small uh, short form content uh, with airtime and these models work if you are embedded with the telcos and the telcos are the ones handling your billing. So Yflix, that you guys must know pretty well because they're from Ghana, um, and, um, uh, and a company I invested in called Star News are both kind of based on this model, which is to work with the telcos to distribute very low cost, uh, short form content, very localized to, to very local audiences. And so there is, kind of a market opportunity there but it's but that's pretty much it so yeah that's basically what I learned from um, the whole Bunny TV experience in terms of uh, you know the type of opportunities that you can go after in tech on the continent and more specifically uh, in the streaming space you know that's a great insight but what do you think about use cases maybe it's not Africa specific but I want to um, get your thoughts on use cases like Kareem, who started in the wide sharing space and was able to have a big market share um, that Uber has still not been able to, you know, take completely out of them. Does there is there a difference in such a scenario, or is it because it's not Africa specific, and the dynamics are different in the MENA region? Um, I don't know if it's because of the MENA region, because Uber has had competitors around the world, not just in MENA, that have succeeded uh, better. Um, the, the main thing with Uber, there's been two things. So now we're getting into a whole other sec sector, a whole other business model. But uh, there's two challenges to the Uber model. One is regulation so in a lot of countries that they've entered to the you know they started not, not being super legal and then suddenly local authorities were wait you're destroying the the, the the traditional taxi service we need to regulate you and so then they had to you know accept some some limitations to their business and their prices rose right so regulation is one challenge to uber you have countries in the world that have banned uber okay uh so, and or, or that they have, they have made the service too expensive to make sense for Uber to continue. Uh, and another challenge, which is a little bit linked as well, is, um, how they deal with their drivers. Um, you know, there's been this whole debate about whether Uber drivers are employees or not. At the very beginning, Uber was saying they're not. They're contractors. Um, maybe that worked for a while. And then a lot of countries said, no, that's not possible. They have to be employees. Uh, so there was also a whole debate around that, and it's not harmonized. Um, you know, drivers have different um, status in various countries, uh, but this also impacted uh, the prices charged to the customer and the, the money that drivers can make. And so all of these things in the Uber model uh, create space for competition, for other players that do the same thing, but they treat the drivers better, they agree to follow certain rules that Uber 
points to uh, to limiting um, and and so that's why Uber has some competitors that uh, that are going you know strong. But for example, so you mentioned Karim, Karim but there's Bolt. Uh, Bolt is a very strong competitor to driver in many countries, uh, including in in Nigeria. Um, so that's that's the situation with that particular type of business. So let's talk about the entertainment industry, then we zoom into the creative industry, because you yourself, you were part of people that are working in that space, and now you're supporting creators, you're giving opportunities there. When you work in helping, you know, build talents in that space, because some of your work was previously around that area, what was it that you saw that was the biggest hindrance to, you know, like you were saying in this case, taking our content and talent to a global stage and what do you think has changed in that space for example you are seeing now a lot of afrobeats going global but there is an argument to be made that perhaps that is riding on the big players like you know big uh, music labels that are now suddenly interested in african talent but from your insight and from your experience from then and now still continually be in the space what can you tell about the opportunity that has always been there to take our content global, but what has changed and shifted to allow enable um, entertainment in Africa reach that global length. There is still some some journey to be made there, but you can clearly tell that at least Afrobeats has made that leap in in the space. Uh, I I think it's the central question for everyone that's working in the creative space and understand the the dynamic and the mechanics of play and how you can leverage them. Uh, independently as a creator and and kind of what is your timeline and what can you hope for um, first of all I think that as a base uh, I think that it's universally recognized that uh, African creativity is is top-notch um, it has inspired um, so you know African art any kind of art has inspired uh, other creatives on other continents since the beginning of time. Uh, there's examples uh, in music. Uh, of course, we know uh, all the genres of music that are rooted uh, initially in African beats. Um, there are many, or almost all of the genres in the world at some point find some, some connection to that. Um, same with visual arts. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the whole movement uh, in Europe of Cubism, uh, started by Picasso, uh, was inspired by African sculpture. Uh, and this is something that is very well known, and there's exhibitions about that, and, you know, it's established. Um, there's, a, of course, we all know that a lot of fashion designers get inspiration from African motifs, and years ago they used to just steal it, and now they kind of have to credit it, but, uh, you know, the inspiration is, is flowing in that direction for, and has been forever. So the first thing is that there's really a base of creativity uh, that is extremely rich and diverse, uh, and that uh, that 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 Africans are lucky to 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 have at home and be able to leverage. Um, so that's the first thing. So the the fact that African culture is going around the world uh, has always been there. What has changed is that now we have. Um, Thanks to technology and the digitalization of most things, we have now um, ways to communicate across 
countries, languages, continents that are, that that has no no limit, right? So with the internet, with social media, with all these platforms, um, anybody can discover any artist from around the world, from wherever they are. Uh, and so this transition that has happened in the past 20, 20 years, let's say, um, has really enabled, little by little, African art and artists to start being noticed uh, and make themselves noticed by, by others. Um, so this is, this is what has happened. Um, and when it comes to, you know, the success of Afrobeats, um, I would say that music is the art form that is the easiest to absorb uh, when you're from a different culture. Because you don't need to understand the lyrics. In any case, a lot of Afrobeats is in, is in pidgin or in local languages that even most people in the country where it's from don't even understand. Um, and so it doesn't matter. It's about the vibe. It's about the, 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 the rhythm. It's about the melody. It's about whatever the, 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 the artist communicates. Uh, and Afrobeats is very much, um, an upbeat party kind of music. So it's very easily, uh, accessible to a lot of people. And, 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 you know, you can listen to it in, in, in some specific, uh, uh communal moment, you know, in, in a club, in a bar, and at, at the house party. Uh, so that creates, it's, it's easy to absorb. Um, and so because music, uh, it doesn't necessitate uh, any knowledge or understanding of a particular culture to be to, to to be able to appreciate it. I think that's why it's the 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 the, the art form that has exploded the fastest. Uh, but it is totally possible, and of course, I'm you know I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't believe this for other art forms from Africa to also become. Um, uh, I would say to, 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 to become, they're already global, but to become well, better known and for artists to really take their space, uh, really at the top of uh, every discipline. And they're doing it. It's, it's happening. It's happening, right? That's just, of course, Afrobeats. It's so dominant right now, but it's happening in every form. Uh, and that's quite exciting. Um, and of course, there was the entire discourse these past few years about, uh, you know, um, uh, cultural appropriation, uh, which was necessary. So a lot of people became aware of that. Uh, in the U.S., you, you had in his half the Black Lives Matter movement that changed a lot of things. Uh, and it changed a lot of things because the U.S. is still the largest market when it comes to entertainment in the world and it still, um, leads the way in terms of, uh, you know, really mass market culture, uh, and globalized culture. So if suddenly Hollywood says, now we need to have diversity in every project that we do. Now, okay, we're going to do a project that is set somewhere in Africa. Oh, we're actually going to use African writers in the team. Wow. So that changes everything, right? Um, so I think that's really what happened. And that's, that's, that's where we are now. And so now we're at the stage where, uh, African artists, uh, have access to global audiences. Um, it doesn't mean that it's easy to, 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 to find your audience because, you know, there's so much competition now and it's so crowded. It's hard to stand out, but nothing stands in your way in terms of, um, 
you know, there's no barriers anymore. There's no real gatekeepers. Um, there's no technological challenge. Anyone can record a song. Anyone can put something on the internet. Um, and so that's, that, that's where we're really entering an era of, of, um, massive opportunity, I believe, for the sector. Definitely lower barriers to access for individuals. But I read, for instance, on your newsletter, Hustle and Flow, about the challenge with scarcity of trained and specialized creatives and professionals on the continent and how even a company like Netflix struggled with that. So this leads to my question in terms of building homegrown in industries. How can we build the talent base required to build those homegrown industries? Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. That's, that's the way we are. So, so technically, you know, the content can flow. Uh, practically and concretely, uh, it's entering in competition with everything else that's out there. And so, um, you know, African creators need to level up. And of course, they're coming from a place where historically they've had a lot less access to education, a lot less access to anything that's needed. Um, to hone their craft. Um, and so when you look at, uh, you know, the level of, um, if we look at, if we talk of, of film and television, for example, because you mentioned Netflix, uh, the level of uh, script writing in Africa is still uh, lower than in developed markets. Uh, however, um, it, there's, of course, you know, uh, uh, differences and, and for me so I've, I've never really worked in in france I, I left when i was 22 um and that was a while ago now um but a few years ago i tried to produce a tv series in france not knowing that market at all and i so i was looking for scripts written in french to kind of see because i don't speak french as well as i used to uh, and I, wanted, I was looking for inspiration. And so, first of all, it was super hard to find sample scripts in French. Uh, you can find all the scripts of all the biggest TV series in the U.S. free on the Internet. So you can learn from that. But you cannot learn from reading French scripts because they're not available. That's not how that market works. It's not collaborative. Uh, and then the ones that I found, they were not even uh, written in final draft. I mean, they were not even put in a proper format. And it was... It was terrible, ter terrible a uh, level of writing that was that I was ashamed of, and so all of this to say that this is not again an African problem. But if uh, if African creators, uh, you know, need to compete on Netflix or Amazon or Apple with other shows, they of course need to produce content eventually that that is of the same quality, right? And so there's a lot, a, a huge gap to to bridge. So now there's a lot of initiatives, uh, but they're small scale. Netflix had to take. Uh, the matter into their own hands because they, they, you know, they learned, they were the first on the global part, platform on the market. They learned by themselves trying to produce content how hard it was and they saw themselves that the issue started with script writing, which is the first step. So they, they, they started development workshops. They, you know, they, 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 they train writers. They even had to train development executives because that also doesn't really exist in Africa. Um, and the people who work as development executives right now are the first generation of development executives. They are just learning. It's the, they are the first in their jobs. Um, and so, so Netflix is doing it for their own people. Uh, and then of course they're poaching the best. So as soon as they, they find one person that, that, that is good, then they hire them, right? So that makes it harder for the others. 
But uh, of course, it's a massive continent. You have the 54 countries, all these languages. So it's going to take a while um, to to bring people up to to the level. Uh, there's a chance that Africa has as well as its yes, diaspora. Uh, and in general, they have the best of both worlds because they, you know, they know the culture and they've been trained, um, you know, in the best institutions around the world. Um, and so, you know, that's also hopefully something that, uh, a force that can be relied on to come and help out, do more training, like partner with more junior writers on the continent. Um, you know, I've led a lot of these initiatives to, to, to develop writers over the years and to develop creative teams. And it takes a very long time. It's a very long process to learn how to do that. Uh, but clearly we're, we're, we're seeing progress. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, I have to say the course. Very insightful points and experiences you raised here. And it also reminded me of some of the experiences I made. I'm half Ghanaian and half Swiss, and I predominantly grew up in Switzerland and then spent most of my working career in Ghana. And there are many things, and often the negative ones, that I initially attributed to working in Ghana or Africa. And then later on in my career, I had to realize that some of these problems exist everywhere. And yes, some are worse in Ghana, but there are also things that work better in Ghana and that that often gets kind of lost in the current narrative. So interesting to see that also reflected in your experience to an extent. Yeah. And uh, actually, uh, uh, an example that maybe sits in the middle, and I, I, I like to use it because it can be an inspiration for a lot of African countries, uh, is Israel. Israel today is one of the top countries when it comes to content production for television. Uh, it's a very small country, as, as we know. It has very few people in it, which means that the local broadcasters have very little money because they, you know, advertising is tied to audience so um and so how did they develop their 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 tv industry to become uh you know really um global and and they do such premium tv um well they don't have money uh they started with budgets that are similar to what uh you know budgets are in africa now so they really focused on okay what can we produce uh that can be done for super cheap, so, you know, limited locations, not a lot of actors, not a lot of set design or complicated stuff or complicated visual effects. And so, for a show like that to be compelling, we have to focus on characters and we have to focus on interpersonal drama and high stakes. Um, and so, they just really invested in making their characters interesting and the relationships between the characters interesting. And they became experts at that. Also, it's a culture where they're in a life and death situation all the time. So there's lots of situations to draw from. But it's Israel that invented the show called In Treatment, which is basically um, a therapist uh, in the American version played by Gabriel Byrne uh, receiving uh, receiving patients. And that's just in this like, one location. It's the office. And everything relies on the, the conversation between the patient and the therapist. But it's so well written that you don't get bored. Uh, and that became, you know, a, a global show that was made in several locations. I actually tried to do a Nigerian version of the show. 
Um, and the reason I couldn't pursue it is because I couldn't get the rights for the whole of Africa. I could only get the rights for Nigeria, which doesn't make sense. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so, so that's how they went about it. So that's, that's an approach that African creators can certainly take. Uh, and some of them have thought in that direction, but you don't need that much money to do something compelling. But if you don't have money to distract the audience with like big explosions or car chases or glamorous, uh, you know, beach or hotel locations, then focus on the characters, go deep, deep, deep in the characters, craft beautiful dialogue, craft really intricate, tense situations, um, and, and then you have a show. And so we can do that in Africa. That's, that's, you know, that's something that's definitely doable. So you showed, um, you shared an article by Hugo Amsalem, if I get the name right, and it was a very insightful article, which is one of my best reads throughout um, my research about all the brilliant work that you've been doing. And Hugo makes a case that the creative economy will look much like the business, uh, the music business. And, you know, went on to this very interesting theory about how this creative industry is a permissionless industry. Everyone can basically, you know, start with internet, with platforms that exist, all of that. You can start a YouTube channel. You know, you gave all of those um, YouTube numbers on your on your newsletter where there are some big winners still comparatively to the West and the, and, and, and the rest of the globe. You know, it could definitely scale. But there's a huge opportunity there. It's not so difficult to start, but scale obviously thrives on big record companies coming to take you know, the talents that are groomed and then run with it. What do you think about the opportunity of having investments that allow us to build our talent to the point where they are attractive to, say, Universal Music Group? And how does that translate into the creative economy? How is your work relating to a space where we can get creative studios that are coming in to take blown um, um African creators. You know, you can see Elsa's sudden growth in the, in the past two or three years, for example. How do we engender that in a very theory-based, intentional approach? So that's quite a complex question because there's several uh, layers to it. Um, uh, what Hugo says in his article is basically, and, and the parallel with the music business, is that uh, there's there's not a real creator middle class. So you have a few winners at the top who make some money, uh, the ones who are able to draw like uh, really, uh, you know, very large numbers, but then they have to remain at the top. So they have to remain, continue to create constantly um, because if you stop feeding the machine that everything crashes back down. So that's a lot of pressure. And actually we have a lot, we hear a lot of, uh, you know, issues of burnout among content creators around the world. Uh, and then you have millions and millions of tiny content creators who, yes, they can, they have no technical limitations to put their content out there, but then no one sees it because there's so much competition and there's nobody in the middle. Uh, and so that's kind of what he talks about when he compares the music business and the creator business. Um, but then, so, so finding business models in that space is a challenge everywhere. Um, the, the solution is not to be signed to Universal uh, or to a global platform. Actually, that's kind of 
one of the problems. Um, because these, 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 these big companies, they're not African, right? So then that means that, uh, for the talent itself, okay, m maybe they will benefit, their career will benefit, but the money really is not going back to Africa in any way. Um, it's going to a big conglomerate. Uh, it's not empowering any, um, African, uh, entertainment companies. Uh, and so we're just back into an exploitative model. Uh, where the talent becomes the raw material and the, the, the label, the foreign label is the, the factory or, you know, that is refining that talent and really the, the, the added value is captured elsewhere. So we're back to the same, you know, uh, historical problem that Africa has had. Um, so the, the real solution is to develop local industries, uh, and to, and to develop local champions. So that all these talents, or, or, or maybe just even like the next level, but a lot of the talent stays on the African continent. And we're very far from being able to provide this opportunity, right? Because it's, it concerns the entire economy. Um, if you're a talent that starts to be noticed, you're going to want to have power in your house. You're going to want to have, uh, you know, uh, proper roads. You're going to want to have proper schools for your kids. And so if your country is not giving you that, even if you have the money, because it's not, it's not the money problem in Africa. If you're super rich in Lagos, you still have to deal with having no power. You know, you can have your three backup generators, but it's still going to smell like fuel the whole day. Right. Um, so it's, it's that, that, that's where you cannot disconnect that from growing the economies in general. Everything needs to grow at the same time. Uh, and of course, it's you, 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 even if you're a great government, you cannot do everything at the same time. So it's going to take a while. Um, but the, yeah, the, the solution is not to, to become a big talent and be signed to a major somewhere else in Hollywood and, and, and leave the continent. That's not the solution. So what, what I'm trying to do when I help, uh, clients. So as part of, um, my work, uh, my advisory work, uh, that I do today, that I'm focused on today, I work a lot with um, very large uh, investors, whether they are uh, public or private, uh, but some of the public one will be big um, development banks like the, the uh, French Development Bank or Frickson Bank or AFDB, um, you know, the, or IFC, these kind of people who have now identified the creative sector as a priority area in Africa because uh, we know it's a very resilient sector. Uh, uh, so if there's a crisis, uh, you know, it, it will not die. Um, and it's a sector that creates a lot of jobs for the youth and a lot of jobs for women. Uh, so it takes a lot of the boxes of these big, uh, big, um, uh, found, uh, funders and investors. And so what I, um, try to do in my work with them is to really, um, first of all, get, try to get them to have an understanding of how things work. So I've been doing this work for, for now six years or so, and, uh, they have learned a lot. So they, they were completely new to the sector and now they understand it much better. And then to try to direct their efforts in the right direction, um, to, so that they can, um, you know, invest funds and in projects that are building proper infrastructure for the, for the sector. When I say infrastructure, uh, that can mean schools, that can mean studios, uh, film studios, that can mean internet infrastructure, because that's really the basis. So you need 
the data centers and the likes. Um, and that can go towards entrepreneurs who are solid, who have, um, you know, survived in the past 10 or 15 years, who are experienced, and that we can back, uh, to, 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 to help, uh, you know, grow their own industry. So that's, that's really how I'm trying on a personal level to tackle this, this issue is to, um, be the bridge between the people who have the money and the people on the ground who know what to do, um, so that we're, we're really building these, uh, these big, these big building blocks, uh, so that we have winners in the entertainment department in Africa. We have companies, we have a few examples, um, you know, the, the leading gaming company in Africa now is Carry First. They've raised over $50 million. Um, it looks like, you know, they're going to be the market leader for, uh, gaming probably. That's pretty solid. Uh, so we have an African player in the gaming space. Um, we have uh, some very large African players in the, in the cinema space, especially in Nigeria. Uh, film One being, you know, one of my long-term clients, and they're the leading film uh, exhibitor and distributor on, in West Africa. Um, so you have now regional players that are solid, strong companies that are profitable, and we need more of those. So that's really what's what I think is the solution. So now let's talk about something I also found very interesting. As a consultant, you work with some of these big international organizations and you do a lot of knowledge building. So one of the more, one of the things that you've done is to work produce research. And one that I found very interesting is the African Film Industry Report, which basically talks around the trends and opportunities for growth for the industry, um, because we've already talked at length about multitudes of industries, what is one or two insights that you can share from that report that you led? Um, yeah, so that's a report I did for UNESCO that was published in 2021. Uh, and so for those uh, that don't know, you can access the entire report for free online. So if you type, uh, you know, uh, UNESCO film industry trends, opportunities, and challenges for growth. You'll you'll find it. And it's in both in French and in English. Uh, and um, the goal with this report was to paint a picture of the audiovisual industry because it's not just about film, it's also television and, and digital content uh, across the continent for the first time. And we we actually looked at each and every one of the fifty four countries. You know, no country was left behind. Uh, so that was a massive work. Um, and uh, and what UNESCO does, which is fantastic, which others don't always do, is that it made the report public so not everybody has access to the same information. Um, so there's lots of insights in there. In, in there. Um, you know, I, I, I highlight several trends. Uh, some of the trends that uh, I'm the most interested about um, are, well, so one of them is that, and we discussed that a little bit, we're at the beginning of a long-awaited boom in local production. So it was slowed down a little bit by COVID like everywhere, but uh, it's there. So now there is an interest, um, you know, for African content that didn't exist before. It is not a total revolution um, because people here at Netflix and Amazon are on the continent, so they think... Uh, you know, that's it, so there's going to be a hundred films and series produced per year. It's a lot harder than that. You still have a lot of hoops to go through um, and all of that. But 
it has changed dramatically in the 15 years that I've been in this business on the continent. Um, so that is starting. And as we've talked about, it's, it's also, um, uh, you know, investment is flowing into getting people uh, upskilled. So, uh, that is ongoing and it's interesting. Um, there's, you know, the question of cinemas. So, uh, there's always that big debate. Uh, is the cinema industry dead or not? Uh, in Western markets, I believe it is dead. Uh, in, in Africa, I think we still have 10, 15, 20 years of a growth of that market in some countries, not everywhere, where it makes sense, such as Nigeria, um, because there's still uh, not enough access to entertainment, there's still pent-up demand, and people very much enjoy the, the communal aspect of a physical experience of going somewhere and enjoying a piece of art, like a movie. Uh, so there's still an opportunity there, and, but it needs to be accom accompanied by other things. So uh, the cinema opportunity is not just you start the cinema with like three screens. It is almost like a, it's a realistic play, uh, and that's the way that film one and others do it, is that it's a minimal, you have food and beverage, you have games for kids, you have shops, and then you have the cinema. And this, as an entertainment center, makes sense, and there's not enough across the continent, and that's an opportunity that's there. Uh, another trend that's interesting is that, um, you know, the main partners for African film uh, traditionally were the European, like former colonial countries, um, uh, so France, the UK, and others. Uh, but now you have the Americans that have arrived on the continent, and you have the Chinese. And so you have these different types of money that you can tap into. Of course, you know, you have to think strategically if you're an operator in the sector, but Africa is one of the regions of the world where the competition and the war between the U.S. and China is taking place, and the media in Africa is one of these areas where this is taking place. So, you know, make your choices carefully. Uh, they, this can be an opportunity. Uh, so there's that. Um, and maybe the last trend that I would highlight from this large report is uh, the the also the education opportunity. So that's not just for film, that's not just for the creative sector, that's across the board, but we all know that there are not enough opportunities uh, for education across the continent. Uh, we still need more. Um, you know, there's some online platforms that are proliferating right now. I don't think that can only be, um, that, I don't think that's the only solution. I think we do need to build infrastructure, physical schools. I think people need to meet and they need to practice and they need to train and they, and they need physical spaces to do that. Uh, and there are people who have been very successful uh, in building, uh, school uh, networks across the continent. It's, it's a it's a business model that's that's profitable, right? It's not uh, easy like anything, but uh, and there's still massive opportunity in that in that regard. Uh, because people in Africa they pay for education. It's not uh, you know not 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 everybody expects it to be free. You have to think hard of of the value proposition, but it's 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 a key. It's considered a key. It's a necessity, right? Education is very important. Yeah. So like Marie said, if you want to access our report you can google it and unesco 
gladly has made that available so that you can get all the insights that she's sharing. But we can't have this conversation without talking about sports, which is something that you're doing right now. Um, globally now, there is a large opportunity for, for sports development. And obviously on the continent, again, like the creative, like the music um, spaces, all the talent is in Africa. Can you tell us about some of the work that you are doing with some of your partners and how you're trying to make sure that the money that, you know, the millions of dollars that are being made in that industry are drawn back onto the continent? Yeah, so sports is the other sector that I'm involved in besides the creative sector. Uh, some people wonder why I do both because they think it's different. Uh, I actually think it's exactly the same uh, because... Um, both the creative and sports sector are based on the same uh, thing, on the same raw material, which is human talent. Uh, and so it's the, these are the, it's the same business models. You have to identify the talent, you have to grow the talent, you have to protect the talent, you have to leverage and exploit that talent commercially in many ways, um, and you have to build various revenue streams based on the talent that is a person originally. And so these are the same things. And of course, we know of uh, the, the many overlaps that exist between music and sports. And, you know, and if you, if you look at the, the World Cup or the Super Bowl, all these big sports events, they will have, um, music involved. Uh, we also know that athletes are big, uh, promoter of fashion. There's, uh, lots of great, uh, film and TV that is made based on athletes' stories or sports stories. So these sectors are completely overlap, hence my interest in, in sports. I'm also very much interested in sports because, as you said, um, uh, you know, uh, people of African origin are over-indexed uh, in the top, you know, uh, athletes of the world. So there's clearly uh, uh, a lot of things that have to do with genetics and with the, you know, where people grow up uh, and the type of bodies um, that succeed well in sports. Uh, and we all know not every region has the same strength. The East Africans are the runners. The West Africans are the boxers or basketball players. Um, so there's so much, so much um, uh, wealth uh, to tap into when it comes to sports talent. And so far, a friend of mine uses these, this... this um, this phrase that I think he came up with, um, a Nigerian investor friend of mine, who says that so far Africa has been exporting DNA. Um, and that DNA has been, you know, making a lot of money elsewhere. So same problem. How do we, first of all, uh, you know, we've barely scratched the surface. That's a, that's a phrase I use all the time because that's where I feel we are. Um, in terms of uh, uh, the, the number of people who could be athletes, and make a living through that on the continent. Maybe we've seen 0.01% of what's possible, right? Uh, so there's a whole opportunity in finding these people, uh, in training them and getting them to a point where they're generating a lot of revenue through their abilities. Today, the market is such that if you're an African athlete, you can only make real money outside the continent. You can only make money. So I work for a, a football development company called Rainbow Sports, for example. That is great at that, identifying young talents in Africa, training them in their academies and clubs around the world, and then 
um, you know, selling them off to bigger clubs once they're ready in Europe. Uh, Europe or the world, actually, also in the U.S. and Asia. And the, the founder of this company, King Se Pung Gong, uh, is, he is Cameroonian, and he knows that very, he knows very well that if he doesn't find a way to make money, there, he cannot bring uh, development back to the sports sector in Africa. You need to have the money to be able to develop the sector. And so his business model is based, and I think it's, it's, it's the way that it has to be, uh, first, the first step is to develop the talents and, and help them to go and make money uh, in the biggest markets. And then that money you pour back into the pipeline that you're creating on the continent that is helping to develop the, 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 the academies and the clubs uh, and help improve the governance of the local structures because we know that African football is the Wild West and it's you know extremely difficult to navigate. Um, but slowly improve uh, how the local space is working. And so that's really the way. Um, you know, first make, generate money through export and use that money to improve the infrastructure on the ground. Uh, and I have to say that there's a lot of things that are going on in sports today across the continent. Of course, we know, um, of the Basketball Africa League that was launched a few years ago by the NBA. Um, you know, there's this, we know that there's the American, uh, NFL now uh, scouting for players across the continent. Um, uh, you know, there's uh, leagues of MMA looking for fighters across the continent. So there's a lot of opportunities, but you need to be ready to do the hard stuff, which is being on the ground and in places that sometimes have nothing. And you have to go and build the academy. You have to go and send the scouts. You have to, you know, do the hard work of convincing the parents that you're going to take care of their child and that they shouldn't sign with that other person who's not reputable and, you know, be careful about contracts and things like that. And you need to have governments that look into that and enable uh, while still protecting, you know, the young people that, that, that are at the center of all this. So there's a lot of work, but uh, I think it's worth it. Marie thinks it's worth it. That's a great conversation. I think that would be a great segue for the end of the Change Africa podcast today with Marie Laura Mongai, who is the founder and CEO of Restless Global. It was great to have you on the podcast, Marie. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was great talking to you both. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yaustratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media.